The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. We're in 1 Peter 3. It's going to start in verse 13. Read to the end of the chapter. That's verse 22. And then we'll come back and work through them. Okay? 1 Peter 3, 13. Here we go. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Praise God for his word. You see what I'm talking about? Peter didn't make it easy for us, did he? All right, buckle up. We're going to have fun. All right, we're going to come back to verse 13. Um, first of all, we'll take it in isolation here because it, it's the hinge point. So as, as the rest of the context is going to make clear, what Peter is saying here is really... What he's saying is, who can really harm you, not that no one will? Like, some people could read this, and if you just read this verse, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? So if you just read that, you can say, okay, if I'm zealous for what is good, then no one will ever harm me. And people do have treated that that way, and they apply it to several, uh, what's a nice word? Um, I can't think of one, so I'm just not going to say anything. Um, Wrong teachings, okay, false doctrines. Um, Really what he's saying here is, who can really hurt you if you prove zealous for what is good? Not, he's not saying that who is there to harm you like no one ever will. That, and, and if you just keep going and read a couple more verses, that becomes very evident. Because the next words are, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, right? So clearly he wasn't making this out of the gate, every situation promise that if you're zealous for what is good, nothing bad will ever happen. Absolutely not. Because then he says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Okay. What does that mean? Well, you are blessed. There, there's, there's two ways this is true. Um, if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. The first, this echoes something Jesus said himself. Matthew 5, verse 10, he says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So right off the bat, um, what we understand is just simply, if, if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, if you are ever in the situation where you are, you are persecuted 
actively persecuted by somebody because uh, of, of a choice to obey God, or you just there's more difficulty in this life as a result of you choosing to obey God and, and for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what, what does that lead us to? This is, this, this is difficult. This, is, this, cause, this should cause a paradigm shift in our thinking. And he's going to keep doubling back on this idea throughout these verses. So we're going to talk about this more from different slants. But, but right now, just stick your toe in the pool with me on this idea that actually to be persecuted for righteousness, to have difficulty because I'm making the right choice, because I'm serving God and doing right, that, may, that very thing may bring for me difficulty. Right? That, does that offend your sensibilities at all? Did you learn somewhere at some point, if you be good, God will be good to you? And that's all that will ever happen. That's real difficult because right here we have said very plainly, if you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, not because you did something dumb, but for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Jesus said, blessed are those, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So first of all, we are blessed when we're persecuted for the sake of righteousness because we belong to God. Like right off the bat, the very fact that persecution's coming because you're choosing to obey God is like a stamp for you to see for yourself and for others to see that you do belong to him. So the very fact that, that, that difficulty comes as a result of serving and obeying God, that's, that's a blessing in and of itself because it reminds me of this one thing. The kingdom of God is mine. I belong to him. I'm blessed simply because I am a son or a daughter of God. That's a blessing. I hope you count that as a blessing. I hope you count that as primary among your blessings, that you belong to him. Now, in addition to that, there's a sense throughout the scriptures that in a, in a, in a special way, aside from this, this standard fact that we are blessed when, when we belong to God and thus suffer the persecution that invariably comes, the difficulties, the trials that come, and that's much of what this book is about. Much of what Peter is saying is, I know you guys are having it hard. I know you're getting hit from all sides. Here's a bunch of reasons, and he always ties it back to Jesus and his suffering, why we can be encouraged and, and not give up. Okay, so that's pretty much the overall theme. And, and he says these sufferings are part of the refining that God does as, as, as growing us and conforming us into his image. And so we, we will struggle, friends. We will need the help of the Holy Spirit every single time we find ourselves in a difficult situation uh, and, and we didn't bring it on for us to think, okay, I'm blessed because of this. That this is, a, this is actually a good thing. This is part of how God is shaping and forming me. God is going to do something beautiful out of this. That's not our initial response. But we, this is part of why we come to the word. We come to the word to have it crush into dust all the things that we think that don't line up with God's truth. Maybe that's not why we come sometimes, let's be honest, but should we, right? Like, that is the way we should approach it. We should expect to get hit bluntly with some stuff when we come to God's Word because He thinks about things different than we do sometimes. The second way, um, there seems to be this blessing where God draws near. When you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, 1 Peter uh, 4.14 says this. So just, we'll hit this in a couple days, but it, I had to say it here. In 4.14, and he's still in his flow of thought, he's saying, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Does that sound familiar? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so Peter, he's giving this idea, and we see this elsewhere in the scriptures, that God draws near, and he, and he dispenses this blessing of his presence to those who endure suffering 
for the sake of righteousness. I don't know if you've ever read like Fox's Book of Martyrs. There's several accounts, uh, both ancient and modern, of people being uh, martyred for the faith, murdered in terrible ways, and, and somehow, even in, in the midst of the, the suffering of, of that magnitude, uh, there's, there's accounts again and again of people singing as, as flames overtook their bodies. Um, and and, and there's, this, there's this idea, and it, and it comes through in this, uh, and, and Peter's talking about it here. It doesn't even have to be that extreme. There is a blessing when we trust God and we endure underneath and, and in the midst of difficulty and trial that is a result of righteousness. We are blessed. There's a blessing. God, God draws near to the person that is enduring in those circumstances. And so you're blessed more than one way. In just kind of this general sense that that helps us know we belong to him, but also in a special way. When you bear up under that kind of, that kind of difficulty, God has promised to draw near to you, and he'll be there to help you. I hope you're excited about that. I really am. Amen. Uh, so next we're going to deal with the second half of 14 and the first half of 15. Okay, so we did the first part. Um, it says, the second half of 14 is, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Okay, so don't be afraid, don't be intimidated by those that would want to persecute you in light of the fact that you're a servant of Christ, or just, and it doesn't have to be, he, it can be hard for us to relate to this, so let me, let me stop for a second. If you know who he's talking to, he's talking to first century Christians who are, who are literally very likely underneath the rule of Nero, who is, who is using Christians as human torches, right? Like just terrible, real deal, to the death persecution. And so we could think, well, I, I don't run a big risk of that, but we, we have to understand just because forms and, and, and modes of persecution change doesn't mean there isn't any. I think we should, we should say that we, it should be easier for us to some degree to obey these verses than it was the people actually staring gruesome death in the face as a result of serving Jesus. But for us, the reality is there can be a price. There can be difficulty that comes when we serve and obey the Lord in the midst of a culture that largely doesn't, right? You could be the one passed up for a promotion. You could be the one at work that people... Uh, you know, everyone gets real quiet when you walk in the room because here's that Jesus person. And, you know, you, you can, there can be ridicule and all these kinds of things, right? You can, so there can be real consequences uh, and, there, and there can be persecution. And it can lead to difficulty for you in your life. And it could lead to you being tempted to uh, either pull back or kind of try to not be so outward about who it is you serve and that you love the Lord. Uh, or... It could cause you to just kind of jump right in with everybody else because that's, that honestly looks like it's easier. Um, but we don't want to do any of that. So we don't want to fear intimidation, and we can't let our hearts be troubled. Instead, he says, but, or instead of doing that, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. What does that mean? When Christ is Lord in our hearts, we can have a humble confidence. We are not intimidated or insecure because our identity is in him, not in the acceptance of others. Can you at least relate with the potential for temptation that if you're constantly ridiculed for your faith, and I talked to some of you, some of you are in situations where this is, you are always being put back on your heels about the fact that you believe the Bible. Are you serious? You believe the Bible, right? Do you, it's, and everyone's got their arguments about why it's archaic and shouldn't be trusted and all of this. 
do you, do you at least, can you at least relate to, if you, don't, if you haven't really experienced this, the temptation to be intimidated, to uh, kind of back up and, and not be so bold about, not share your faith, not be outward um, as far as kind of running against the grain and what everyone else is doing. I think we all can relate to that, uh, especially, you know, Maybe you work in a in a Christian bubble right now, and that's uh, that'd be great. That's wonderful. I don't think most of you do, but I mean, just think back to high school and that that situation. I mean, I failed miserably at doing this <laughs> the right way in high school. It's one of the biggest regrets of my life. But uh, thank God through Facebook and social media, I've been able to reconnect with a lot of people and share the gospel I should have a lot of years ago. I'm not gonna say how many years, because I'm getting old enough now where it makes me feel insecure, so, but, uh, but, but Christ is Lord in my heart, and so I'm not going to worry about it, um, but, so what does it mean? We can have a humble confidence. We're not intimidated or insecure. When our identity is in him, it's the acceptance of others, that's, you can take that off the table, like, if you, if you are confident in who you are in Christ, if you, if you're really excited about the fact that I belong to Jesus, and that's who I am, you're going to be at least on that front, you're not, there's not going to be a whole lot of temptation there for you to, to yield, to not be um, bold about and, and kind of love-motivated in the way you conduct yourself and speak. So how does this practically look? It, think about it this way. I, th- I think a lot of times we, we struggle because we buy into... We, Oftentimes Christ isn't set as Lord of our hearts, and oftentimes it is, it is very much a struggle feeling intimidated because it seems like everybody else has this, this way of thinking, and, it's, and, and mine is the one that's different. And so it's, it's very tempting to just kind of be quiet and put our faith in the corner and uh, maybe sometimes even join into uh, deeds and words and things that we know doesn't reflect Christ well, but it just kind of takes the pressure off. But why do we do that? Because let me ask you this. Let, let, let's say you're out hiking and, and you know, you're going around the trail. Just imagine some, some beautiful place with, with canyons and whatnot. And so you come around this corner and, and you look down in this ravine and there's, there's this guy down there that's fallen. And he's broke his leg. You can see it. It's bad. He's been down there for a while. And, and there is... He's in such a bad way, there is no chance he's getting up out of this ravine unless somebody helps him. And so you start trying to pull some rope out and decide, okay, I'm going to figure out how I can help this guy, and you start getting your stuff ready. What, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond if what this guy does from down in the ravine is starts yelling up at you, you're an idiot, and throwing rocks at you and saying, you don't know what you're doing, and throwing another rock at you and get out of here, right? Like, are, are you going to, here's my question. You're up on the trail. You've not fallen down in the ravine. You're not in imminent danger of death. You actually have the means to help this guy. And just because he's like deluded or hysterical or hasn't drank water in a few days and, and who knows what's going on, he's yelling all this stuff at you. Are you going to go, maybe he's right, and, you know, and pack up your rope and on down the trail you go? Like, is that, my question is, is it going to get to you? You're dumb. You don't know what you're doing. Look at you up there on the trail. I, w- I wouldn't give a lot of clout to that, Mr. Guy that's in the ravine with the broken leg. Like, you obviously didn't know what you were doing on the trail, and you're having a hard time. And, and 
the best shot you have of not being in that hard time is grabbing the end of this rope I'm going to try to drop to you. It, it's no different, man. When you go into your workplace, you got a bunch of people that are dead in their sins. Let's just call it what it is. They're blind. They're hopeless without Christ. They don't have a shot. They're in worse shape than a guy with a broken leg at the bottom of the ravine. This doesn't make you better than them. Why are you on the trail? Because Jesus came along earlier and pulled you out the ravine. Remember that. So we're not looking at the guy in the ravine saying, wow, how dumb are you? And how much better am I? We, we just, we, we've seen a rescue before, and, and now God's called us to be a part of rescuing others. But if the guy we're trying to help and rescue is throwing rocks and calling us names, is that going to really hurt your feelings? Are you going to start to kind of second guess whether or not I'm a good hiker or not? <laughs> no, man. You're just going to say, well, that's what people that haven't drank water in a while do, right? They're, he's just delusional. And so when, when people that are blind to the truth, dead in their sins, start giving you a hard time about following Jesus and living a righteous life and not doing the things they do and obeying the Lord, uh, if that ever causes insecurity for you, man, you, gotta, you just got to think about it again. It doesn't make sense. It never should. And, and if Christ is Lord of our hearts, we can have that humble confidence. It doesn't put us above anybody because we've been rescued too. But it also doesn't let somebody that needs rescued make us feel dumb for having been rescued. Can you say amen to that? Amen. amen. Hallelujah. Uh, verse 15. So you continue, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's his answer to don't fear, don't be intimidated, but instead, um, other translations will say set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Then it comes to the verse you all knew, uh, we were going to have some fun with. Um, I know some people probably didn't come this week because they knew what was going to happen when I got to this. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Okay? You knew it. We're going to park here for a minute and talk. Okay? So, this is 1 Peter 3.15, but let's, let's connect it to the flow of thought. Sometimes people take this verse in isolation, and, and that's... This is, this is one that has value standing on its own, but the context helps us to, to really understand. So he just told us, don't fear, don't be intimidated, set Christ as Lord over your hearts, so we have this confidence. And, and that, so in his thought process, that ties then to always being ready to make a defense. If you, when you live that way, when you think that way, you're going to have an opportunity then to make a defense. When you have the humble confidence that comes with Christ being set firmly as Lord over your heart and life, you're going to stand out. Uh, and that's going to give you the chance to have an opportunity to make a defense. Now, when you, what do I mean by standing out? It's, it's less standing out. Man, how do I give an example that's not mean? I'll just give an example that's not mean. So let's, let's say, um, I don't know why this outdoors is the theme right now, but it is. So we had a hiking guy. Let's, let's just say you're out at a river. It's, it's a level five rapids. Anybody ever been whitewater rafting before? You've been on, you've seen it on TV maybe at least. Okay, the rest of you, your arms are broken. That's good. All right, um, we'll get medical attention. Uh, so if you've got rapids running down one way, and, and let's say you're standing there, and here comes a kayak going the opposite way, like up the river. Of, of level five rapids, like what, what, what's, what's the reaction to that? There, there's going to be, there's going to be a reaction, right? Like 
you, you, know, you just watch 10 other kayakers going this way, and somehow now this guy, and we're not, I'm not talking about the lazy river, I'm talking about some rapids, man. And this guy's somehow going the opposite way up the thing. It just defies logic. This is what I mean by standing out. When you walk with the humble kind of confidence that comes with Christ being set as Lord over your heart, when you are gospel-centered in the way you live, when you uh, make decisions based on what God has declared and not what everyone else considers to be normative, you're going to stand out that way. Everyone, everyone else is flowing one way, man, and you're going to be going the exact opposite. Again, not in some uh, era of supremacy, but it, it just is different. And so people are, people are going to see that, and they're going to go, first of all, how is that happening? Secondly, like what is going on? <laughs> like, what's going on? And then why? why? Why are you doing that? Why would you? That looks difficult, um, and I don't know the point, right? It looks a lot more fun to just ride down like everyone else, but here you are going the exact opposite direction. Do you understand why Peter says if you set Christ as Lord over your heart and you're not in fear and intimidation and, and you have this humble confidence that then you're going to have the opportunity to give an answer for what's going on there? Why is your kayak going in reverse, bro? Right? That's kind of what it's like. Why you, you have an opportunity to give an answer, a defense um, for the hope that is in you. So there's a lot of ways to get verse 15 wrong. I'll give you two. Uh, and there's really only one way to get it right. So let's think about this together. The first way to get this wrong is to ignore the verses above it, ignore the verse itself, and just kind of go with the flow. Let your kayak go the way everyone else goes. Uh, live in fear. Live in intimidation. Let cultural norms and standards overshadow the fact that Jesus has purchased you with his blood, that you belong to him, that you've been called for a purpose and a mission to be an ambassador, to be a light to the world, to be salt in a saltless place, right? You can just ignore all of that. Live in fear. Don't stand out. Hide your hope. And in doing so, never get to talk about it. You're never going to need to be ready to give an answer because no one's ever going to ask you anything. Because you'll just blend in with what everyone else is doing. That's one way to get this wrong. I would ask you, dear friend, and this is not to, con to condemnation. This is, this is a question that would lead to encouragement. And, and depending on the answer, probably no matter what the answer is, it's going to lead us to prayer. My question to you is, are, are you asked about the hope that is in you? Do you find yourself in everyday situations, circumstances, where something about the way you conduct yourself Something about the spirit of Christ in you causes curiosity. Do people ask? Is anybody asking questions? I think that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Is your life different enough? Is it countercultural enough that it raises any eyebrows? If you got 20 people standing on the bank and you got reverse uh, level five rapids guy, eyebrows are going up. People are going to talk. Questions will be asked. And I don't know if you understand how strong the current of culture and uh, anti-God sentiment and just, and sometimes it's not even, that's the sneaky thing. Man, Satan's a liar. That's the sneaky thing. It's not even like overtly anti-God sometimes. Sometimes it comes wrapped in a bow of like, yeah, God's good, but uh, entertainment and everything else is better, right? Everyone else is just, living their life, doing their thing, not concerned about much that has to do with eternity, and, and it's so easy to, to just jump in that boat and ride. 
Is there something about your life that shows a greater purpose, that shows that there's something going on, that you have a mindset that considers eternity in the decisions you make, the way you use resources? Is something causing people to ask questions? I'm submitting that to you. If, if you're not happy about the answer as you run yourself through that grid, I would ask that you don't, don't get discouraged about that because part of why the Lord leads us through books of the Bible, bringing us to sets of verses like this, is to challenge us in these ways. But he's never, the Bible says very clear, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you're tempted right now to just add on to the pile of insecurities and say, no one's ever asked me about my faith. I'm a loser. I'm terrible. I'm no good, right? If like that's your tendency, please don't go there. That's, that's not what God would have you to do. If the answer is, you know what? I, obviously, something in my life isn't causing much of a ruckus because I haven't been asked about the hope in me in a while or ever. The, the, the right response there is then to say, Lord, please help me to see what are the areas of my life where things need to change so that I will be put in the spot for somebody to be asking me questions about my, why my life is different and ask for his help because this stuff isn't easy. None of this is white-knuckle self-discipline, I'm just going to do it because I decided to type stuff. None of it. All of it is going to, we're going to need the help of the Lord Jesus and the power of his spirit. Amen. Okay, so the first wrong way is just not to do it. Live in fear, hide, no one ever asks you anything, which is a real big bummer. The second wrong way, and that's bad, but the second wrong way might be worse. Here's the second wrong way to do it. You forget the last five words of the verse. What are those? Yet with gentleness and reverence. Well, I put myself in a spot there, huh? What if I miscounted those? Wouldn't that have been funny? There's like four. <laughs> I didn't even double check. Thank you, Lord. My counting skills are on point. Okay. But the second wrong way is that you forget the last five words of the verse, which is yet with gentleness and reverence. Anybody know somebody like this? They're telling everybody about what they know and what they got and whatever else, but there's no gentleness and there's no reference. Here's, how does that look? How does that happen? How do you get to that point? Well, maybe your life is different. Maybe, maybe you don't do the things other people do, but you're prideful about it. Um, you don't wait for people to ask you. You ride around on your high horse, clubbing people with your family-sized Bible that you think is just a book of rules, and you also think you follow those rules really, really good. You think you actually keep all those rules, and so that makes you so much better than all those filthy sinners. I'm, I'm providing an answer for the hope that is in me. What, but hold on, but what did he say? Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you. <laughs> that doesn't mean you never initiate a conversation, but it does mean you don't run around telling everyone how much better you are than them because you follow whatever standard of rules you've set because if you do that, you've forgotten you were a hiker with a broken leg too, right? Can't do that. When, when you do it that way, uh, nobody hears about the hope of Christ. They just hear a message of condemnation as you pour forth platitudes out of your delusional sense of superiority. You have forgotten of how much you've been forgiven. Either that or you've just never understood the gospel. Um, there are people that are not Christians. They're just legalists. And they run around and they really like 1 Peter 3.15. And they kind of ruin it to some degree because 
They're, they're always running around giving an answer for the hope they profess, but the hope they profess is not Christianity and it's not the gospel. It's moralism and it's legalism and it's a, a set of rules that they think they're really good at keeping. Uh, and they're just trying to impose that upon everybody else when really if they were an ounce more self-aware, they would realize they don't actually keep those rules as good as they think they do anyways. Um, if somebody could you know, watch them with a video camera all the time and give them some truth serum, they'd find out. Uh, maybe they do keep the outside of the dish clean, but the inside is full of dead men's bones. That's a quote from Jesus, in case you thought that was weird. I wasn't like getting pre-Halloween on you. <laughs> you can look it up later. Uh, okay, so that's two wrong ways. Just pretty much not doing it all, not standing out, going with the flow. The second way is to be a legalist about it, uh, to have no gentleness, no reverence. What's, what's the right way to, to obey this verse? Well, first of all, first step, remember Jesus is your Lord because he bought you with his blood. And why do you have to do that? He had to do that because you are no better than anyone else. He had to do that because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Romans 3.23 says there's nobody, not one person that's not sinned. Everybody is in the same boat. Everybody is in that ravine, broken leg, and it's because they've chosen to do it. Every single person needs Jesus to come and pull them out. Amen. We're all in the same boat. So you got to remember that first. We're no better than anybody. Jesus is the reason we have a hope to share. The second thing we got to do is approach these interactions with gentleness and reverence, knowing that we are being given an opportunity to affect eternity. Realize that we are woefully unqualified for such a privilege and rely completely on the Holy Spirit. That's what gentleness and reverence means. When you, when you approach this thing, you got to know, first of all, you're being given an opportunity to affect eternity. Does that matter to you? Literally, this conversation could affect this person's eternity. God could be using you in that capacity. you got to realize that every time God uses you like that, you are woefully unqualified for such a privilege. As soon as you start to think, yeah, you know what? I'm a good pick for having conversations with people that affect eternity. You've messed up. <laughs> you got to realize, man, if you don't have the help of the Spirit of God, you're probably going to mess that up every single time. Uh, it doesn't matter how many facts you know. Realize you're unqualified and rely completely on the Holy Spirit. Don't ever get to the point where you got enough scriptures memorized or... Uh, you've read enough books on apologetics that you feel confident. You should, there should be a reverence. There should be a, there should be a trepidation. There should be a, a, a hesitation going into any time you're going to be used by God to profess the hope of the gospel to somebody, to share the truth of the gospel. We should never get to the point where we think, whether or not God shows up to help me do this, I can handle it. That's never true. We need him. Because even, we got to understand, even if we can somehow string the right words together, when we're dealing with people's salvation and we're dealing with the, the, the transformation that needs to happen from somebody going from death to life and darkness to light, the Holy Spirit does that work. Every time, all the time. It's never because we said the right things. That our words aren't enough. We need 
the help of the Holy Spirit. The next part, the next way and, and, and part of how to do this right is to know your own story with Jesus. Pay attention to what this says. He says, the hope, uh, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. The hope that is in you. I would encourage you, if you care about this, if you care about being ready for interactions with people, if you care about being ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you, if, if this is something that you will actually commit to prayer, you're somebody that it, it excites you to think about God using you this way, and it bums you out to think that you might miss out on opportunities like this. If you're engaging with this and you care about it, I would commit to you that you really sharpen and, 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 and rehearse your own story with Jesus, because I believe that this will be your most effective means of giving a defense for the faith. Because I don't know how many of these conversations you've gotten into. I've gotten in more than I could count and that I can even remember. And I've done it lots of ways. When I was a younger man, I memorized a bunch of facts and I thought I could go into every conversation and my facts would beat the other guy's facts. And then I would win. And, and you know, Jesus also won because I won the argument. The older I got, the more conversations I had like this, the more I realized even if I had facts that beat that guy's facts and I kept doing that, the guy just came up with another fact. He just kept doing it. He just had another red herring that he would keep throwing out, right? It would be another, well, what about this thing? Or what about this thing? Dude, I just answered 20 of those things. Like, can we? And so what I've learned is, first of all, if, if somebody's doing that, they may not really be interested in what I've got to offer anyways. So to some degree, there has to be discernment and prayer and understanding that. Secondly, I, I, have, I have witnessed the difference between me giving somebody a bunch of facts that I've memorized and then telling them my story, looking them in the eye and saying, listen to me right now. I, I understand you have a frame of reference. I understand you think about things a certain way, and I understand you've watched some YouTube videos, but listen to me right now. Look me in my eyes. I was dead in my sin. I remember what it was like to be terrified always, to have no hope, no reason for hope whatsoever. I remember what darkness Real darkness feels like. And I'm telling you right now, I'm a different man today because of Jesus. Let me tell you about what that looks like. At the end of the day, somebody can discount your story, but they're not going to argue you off of it. And so, dear friend, I would ask you and I would challenge you to, first of all, be excited about your own story. Sometimes we get so caught up in the hustle and bustle of every single day, we're not, we, we want other people to be excited about how Jesus has changed us, man. We got to get that way first, right? Sometimes we're so caught up in all the distractions and everything else we got going on, we're not thinking about the fact that it wasn't that long ago that I was dead in my sins, that I had zero hope now or for eternity, but now I'm called a son or a daughter of God. I've been given faith as a gift, and my eternity is set, and I'm going to be with God forever. i got to remember my story. i got to remember where I came from. And sometimes it helps me to remember where I came from because that's going to help me talk to this person with reverence and gentleness. Because sometimes, man, there's been too much distance of time between when you were without Christ and when you came to Christ. And sometimes with time, you just start to get used to this stuff. You get used to the idea of having reason for hope. You get used to the idea of having joy even in the midst of difficulty. And you forget that those, these people don't have that. And so they have a bunch of insecurities and coping mechanisms and ways they're trying to just make it through life because they don't have the Jesus you have. And so cut them a break and have love and compassion for them going into this conversation instead of trying to prove them wrong. 
Well, why do they keep fighting me? Because they're desperate and they're scared. Can you, can you remember what it was like to not know that Jesus was going to love you even though you're frail and imperfect? Can you remember what it was like to be totally subject to the approval of people around you? To have, no, to have your identity be in flux every day depending on how your performance was rated by whoever was in your life at that point. To be tossed to and fro by these winds. The instability, the difficulty of that. And we wonder why people act the way they do. We wonder why they struggle. We wonder why they run to medicate themselves with all different forms of things. We need to have gentleness. We need to have reverence. And we need to remember what it was like. I'm encouraging you to know your story. Know your story with Jesus, the hope that is in you, because you will be most effective in giving a defense for the faith, in being able to speak out of your experience with Jesus. That doesn't mean that we should not also study, because when I said that I, I used to do this, I would go fact for fact with somebody and try to and, and do these debates and I'm not saying God never used any of that and none of it was ever fruitful, but I can tell you for sure the times when I was young and, and uh, you know, had more testosterone than was for my own good, uh, a lot of times the motivation was, I, I, I'm going to show this dumb atheist that I'm smarter than them, which is absolutely wretched. Uh, and that I can guarantee you those conversations weren't fruitful, and I can guarantee you that uh, if I didn't repent for those that me and Jesus would be talking about them. That's, that is absolutely not the right spirit to go at this with. It's not the right motive. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't study. And so we should know our own story with Jesus. This is going to be an effective way to share, to give an, a defense for the hope that is in you. Know your testimony. But also, we should study. When we gather like this, I would encourage you, friend, don't be a spectator. Listen, I know if you come here, you're, you're not going to get, you know, three principles in 15 minutes to have your best life now this week, okay? That's not what you're going to get when you come here. But what you are going to get is, like, if you pay attention and really engage, you're going to learn the Bible. Like, do you care about that? Do you have a notebook? Do you, do you like, do you take bets with yourself on how long I'm going to go on a given week? Or do, do, you, do you realize the value and the privilege we have to open these scriptures, trust that the Holy Spirit is going to help us actually understand what they say, acknowledge that it's beyond our own cognitive ability without the help of the Spirit to approach the words of God and get anything from it, the miracle it is every single time we gather together and study the word, are we taking that seriously? Unless you have an, a much better memory than me, I would encourage you to take a note every once in a while, man. Learn something. When you come here, we're going to learn the Bible. There you go. Told you we were going to have fun today. Everyone's like putting their hands down, pretending they're writing. Ain't nobody got a notebook. I can see you. We don't keep it dark in here. So that's part of the fun for me. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? Don't just be a spectator, man. Don't, don't come... Don't come here as, as a religious tick box, man. That's, that's not what we're doing. We're not, we're not, that's, that's not what we're about here. We're not about you coming here, satiating your conscience. Okay, I did the church thing, man. 
When we come here, we're getting ready for war. When we come here, we're getting into this book to figure out what it is Jesus has really called us to do and actually go do something about it. We're not trying to be hearers only, man. We want to be doers of God's word. And without paying attention, engaging, learning, uh, this, this is a great chance for us to study, to gain the ability. I mean, if, if you were here last week and you paid attention, you have, you have the ability now to answer to some degree when people lob accusations that the Bible is against women. If you paid attention last week, you saw that that's not what those verses commonly are accused of being, which is misogynistic, are actually the exact opposite if you pay attention and look. Here's my question, though. If you were here, is, is any of that now a part of your repertoire to be able to have a conversation with somebody? Could you take them through those verses? If not, why not? Praise God. We put the sermon audio online. It'll be there soon. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not trying to be hard on anybody. I'm just saying don't waste what this is. This is an opportunity for us to study together, to equip ourselves together to talk about the truth of the word and be able to make a defense. Peter has this idea here that people are going to attack the truth of God. They're going to want to tear you down, and they're going to want to talk bad about Jesus, talk bad about the Bible, and that to some degree, out of a heart of love for them and love for God, he's calling us to be ready to make a defense. Not in a defensive way, though, right? We don't get defensive, but we should be able to make a defense. We should be able to speak the truth in love. Hallelujah. So take a note every once in a while. Lord Jesus. All right. Uh, I would encourage you also to study on your own. We're encouraged in 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That's the call to every Christian, friend. I would encourage you also to study apologetics. What is that? Apologetics essentially means to give an answer. It comes, it comes the Greek word of it is, is apologia, which is to give an answer. And so we have this whole realm of study, uh, brilliant scholars dealing with supposed Bible contradictions, issues of philosophy. There's all kinds of stuff. And there's, guys, we have less of an excuse than any other generation. I mean, people used to have to Go find a book and open it. Like right now we can click two buttons, man, and all of the world's knowledge <laughs> is at your fingertips. And, and honestly, let me, let me just say this. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm about to say something you might think I am, along with my previous comments. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm, I'm having fun. It's, <laughs> it's true that we have easier access to all of these resources than anybody Ever. Will you agree with me on that? Raise your hand if you agree with that. If you don't agree with that, you're wrong. So put your hand up anyways. We do. This is, my, this is my conviction. I'll submit this to you for consideration. Though it's true that we have easier access to it than anyone, I think by and large in our generation, we, we make less use of it than anybody else. I think we, know, we have more access to more information, more resources, and we use them less than anybody else before us. And I have to imagine we're going to answer to God for that. We still having fun? All right. The Word of God's good for us, man. These things we need to think about. So what, what am I saying? When, when you're surfing social media, I don't know if yours is like this, but I, I, can't, I can't scroll for more than three minutes without seeing probably 10 plus articles that address 
some helpful issue uh, that are, are from good sources, and, and maybe that doesn't happen in your feed, because I, I guess the way the algorithm works, if, you, if you're on World Star Hip Hop all the time watching people knock each other out, that's probably all that comes up in your feed, right? So like if you would quit watching cat videos and like videos of people falling, you know, fail army stuff all the time, like do seek out a few times maybe a good article from Piper or from Zacharias or from one of these guys, Keller, read something. That's what I'm encouraging you to do. If you do that a couple times, Facebook will figure out, oh, this person likes to read. We wouldn't have guessed it from before, but look, they're turning over a new leaf. And so then that stuff will start to show up and you won't even have to go look so hard for it, right? But here's what I'm saying to you. Honestly, like on my feed, uh, th- there's probably, if I scroll for five minutes, there's probably 20 articles and they're addressing like pertinent issues, things that would help me to think right about issues of the day um, or just things that, that, that would help me to have conversations with people. Um, and, and, and those are just articles, right? There's all kinds of, there are, on the internet today, there are commentaries, Bible commentaries, free, all over the place. You can go to studylight.org. You can go to uh, blueletterbible.org. There's, um, Bible Gateway has free commentaries. There's all kinds of sources. You could spend the rest of your life reading free commentaries that people used to pay a lot of money to have access to. You could go read them for free right now. Matthew Henry's is on there. Uh, you can get to a lot of Spurgeon stuff. There's, there's so much out there. Um, gotquestions.org is a great website. I I don't know that, I I can't say I'm 100% with them on everything when it comes down to second and third tier doctrine stuff, but who cares? Like there is a wealth of of questions and answers and information. Um, So, you know, guys, if if you've seen one, 10, or 100 cat videos, you've seen them all. Like, can we just, can we move on to something else? That's that's my question. <laughs> I, it's not just cat videos, you know, whatever your thing is. Sorry to pick on the cat video people. I said fail videos too, and I've watched those. I'm guilty. But I don't even laugh anymore. I've seen it all, right? You can only fall and hit yourself in the private so many ways, right? And it's not funny anymore. And that's the thing, like, we're all desensitized to it. But we're just, I'm so bored, right? I mean, I. Is there an app that will like give you a report weekly of how much time you spend watching Netflix? If there isn't, there is? Okay, somebody send me the link. I'm going to post it everywhere. You see what I'm saying? I'm not saying there's nothing good on them. There's, there's document. Well, there's documentaries on Netflix. Well, you ain't watching them, are you? There's a lot of other stuff on there, too. And most of those documentaries, dear friend, aren't helping you make a defense for the hope that is in you. I'm just standing with Peter and I'm pleading with you to care about the fact that you may come into a situation where you have an opportunity to speak into somebody's life and affect their eternity. I'm not even asking you to think about the fact that that might happen. I'm asking you to pray for that and care about that, seek for that, and prepare for that. That's what I'm laying before you. Look for it and prepare. Uh, Because God wants to use you that way. He's made it clear. I'm asking you to study and prepare like you really think Jesus might send someone your way that wants to know why you follow him. In all your studying, make sure you pray. Pray that God would share his love for the lost with you so that when you read, I'll say that again, 
Every single one of you, I'm asking you to pray this prayer. Lord, please share the love that you have for the lost with me. Let me love them like you do. Because then, when you go read and study and prepare, and when you get the opportunity to answer for the hope that is in you, your motive will be love for God and for that person instead of pride or insecurity or defensiveness. So in all your studying, pray. Remember, 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Go study, but realize you're going to be tempted to be prideful every single bit of knowledge you gain. And so with it, make sure you're asking God to increase your humility. The more you learn, the more you should understand how desperately you need Jesus. How true that song is we sang at the beginning of this service. We need him. Praise the Lord. We made it through verse 15. You can loosen your collars. All right? Hallelujah. Verse 16. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. What's he saying? The truth comes out eventually. And so don't get pulled in. Don't act the way they act. Somebody slanders you. Somebody treats you bad because you serve Jesus. They, they try to make your, your good deeds or your, your righteous living as a result of God uh, empowering you by his spirit. They try to make that into a, a bad thing. Just trust him. Keep a good conscience. Deal with your heart, friends. Some of, you, some of you have trained yourself to be able to not say things <laughs> or do things in response, but in your heart, you're, you're boiling over. You're seething. There's, there's hate and bitterness there. Uh, and if you're going to leave the heart there like that, you might as well just say and do the thing. Because... The end effect is the same. And so keep a good conscience. Keep them before the Lord. See them as somebody broken and hurting. And that's the reason why they're coming after you. Don't let it get to you, cause you to be insecure. Ultimately, if they don't stop that, they will be put to shame, not you. Verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. <laughs> that is a bazooka, man, that just blows a hole in the side of that ugly cruise ship known as prosperity theology. Doesn't it? Can I read it one more time? Think about this whether or not this just blows a hole in the Disney cruise ship called prosperity gospel. Let me read you verse, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Well, because of grace and mercy, God will only ever shower you with good things, and if he's not showering you with good things, it's because you have a lack of faith. I don't think so. Now, we, we can't just make fun of prosperity theology. We need to actually talk about what this verse means. Because it, it could, you, could, you could be like, oh, wow, well, that's kind of a bummer. If God should will it that I would suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So is God like all about my suffering? No. What does he say here? It is better. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Okay, so right at face value. Do you believe that? This will be the hardest part of this sermon for you to believe. Right here. It's better for you to suffer for doing what's right than to suffer for doing what's wrong. And that offends your sensibilities, and I know it. Because we are all about what's fair. 
And that doesn't seem fair, does it? Some of you are okay, like if I cause the problem, then I get it that I'm going to have some suffering, but you just can't wrap your head around suffering for doing the right thing. And you you really struggle to think how that could be better than the other one. Okay? He answers it for us. How could that be possible? How is it better? Let's read verse 18. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Why is it better, friends? We can't be preoccupied with what seems fair or getting what we deserve, because verse 18 tells us we are already doing way better than that. We are already doing so far better than what we deserve that fairness shouldn't even be in the calculation. We suffer for doing what is right. He says that's better than for suffering for what's doing what's wrong. So, so here, you put yourself, let's, let's, just, let's just put in the situation. Let's say you have a boss that hates Christians. You are a Christian. You have made that clear. You don't do what everyone else does. Uh, and when everyone else is gossiping, you're trying to speak a blessing, and that just gets on that guy's nerves, and so you suffer the persecution of not only do you get passed over for a promotion that you deserve, you get a demotion simply because you're a follower of Christ, and this guy hates you because of it. So how do you think about that? Is it better that I suffered for righteousness than if I would have got that demotion if I uh, screwed up whatever it is, right, that you're working on? Um, Say you work at the popcorn factory and you burn a bunch of popcorn. Where did that example come from? I don't know. It's amazing, isn't it? Right now. You burnt $4 million worth of popcorn, so now you get the demotion. You could hand, like, our sensibility is like, yeah, I did. I burnt more than $4 million of popcorn. I get it. Back down the ladder I go. But, but like, it's real hard for us to be like, I, I'm there early. I stay late. I work as if I'm working unto the Lord. I'm, I'm faithful there. Uh, doesn't mean I'm perfect, but I, man, I, I work harder than anybody else there. Never burnt the popcorn, and I'm still getting demoted because I serve Jesus. How is that better? It's better, dear friend, because you're doing what's righteous, because you have the conviction, because Jesus has saved you. And it, it's also better because if you want to get down to fairness, it's not fair. I'm doing what's right, and something bad's happening to me. You know what's not fair? Jesus never did anything wrong, and something really bad happened to him. And that's the point of verse 18. When he tells you it's better for you to suffer for righteousness' sake than for doing something evil, he flows right into this thought, as he does over and over again through this entire book. The reason why? You're not getting what you deserve. You're getting far better. No matter how much difficulty you encounter in this life as a result of being somebody that's walking in righteousness, you are still so far above what is fair. Because what's fair, friend? Let's just level it all the way out. Here's what you deserve. Death and hell. And that's all of us. And so any day we wake up and we're not dead or in hell, we're doing pretty good. I heard three amens. That was a good spot to do it. That's the truth, isn't it? And so you got to change your paradigm on fairness. Every day, the fairness scale is lopsided in our favor and against Jesus. (laughs) He had to pay 
the biggest price. He had to suffer the most. And no suffering we ever endure for righteousness' sake will come anywhere near touching what Jesus has endured so that we could have a chance at walking righteously. Pastor Jordan, your boy, has some beautiful language here on it. This is from Spurgeon. It is almost as if the apostle said, you have none of you suffered when compared with him, or at least he was the arch sufferer, the prince of sufferers, the emperor of the realm of agony, Lord paramount in sorrow. You know a little about grief, but you do not know much. The hem of grief's garment is all you ever touch, but Christ wore it as his daily robe. We do but sip of the cup he drank to its bitterest dregs. We feel just a little of the warmth of Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, but he dwelt in the very midst of the fire. You see what we're talking about? It is better that we would suffer for righteousness' sake than if we suffer for doing evil. Because the very fact that we're able to suffer for righteousness' sake is a result of the fact that someone suffered first. And his name is Jesus. Hallelujah. Hope you believe that, friend. Verse 19 and 20. Who once were disobedient... He went, sorry, no. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. This is the part where Peter says cool stuff in weird ways, okay? So... First of all, let me just say this. What exactly Peter means here is not agreed upon. Uh, there are several interpretations, two major ones, on what he means when he says uh, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Okay, I'll give you the two main views. Either one is within orthodoxy. It's okay. This would be like fifth-tier issue, way open-handed, whatever. If you like somebody and they say this and you're inclined to think that, that's fine. Here's the two major things. One, that those prisons or those spirits in prison were faithful people before the time of Noah. Um, and Jesus essentially went and preached the gospel to them. That's major idea one. The second one is that <clears throat> uh, these spirits now in prison were fallen angels that were disobedient before the time of Noah and were a big part of why the earth was so vile at that time that God had to send a flood, okay? So it's either people or fallen angels. I will give you my opinion. You don't have to agree with my opinion. My opinion is this. I think, and I'll tell you why. I think it's fallen angels, and here's why. Peter seems like he's talking along a similar line of thought in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Let me just read you this. He's, he's making a similar point in this letter and he, he come, he's using kind of the same example, and I think he flushes it out more. Here's what he says there. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Okay? So to me, it seems like he's using the same argument in both places. He just makes more clear who the spirits are that he's talking about in 2 Peter. Okay, there's other reasons, but that's the short version. Um, question you might be asking, why does that matter? Here's why it matters. Um, 
both are good news, right? Like whether or not Jesus went and preached to uh, Old Testament faithful in, the, in that time frame or whether he was going and declaring uh, the truth of his victory to these fallen angels, these spirits in prison. Uh, either way, this is another reason to be confident in God and have no fear of the forces of darkness. Uh, I, I would just say this. If Jesus, during uh, the, the time between his death and resurrection went and preached the fullness of his triumph to these spirits in prison. Uh, the forces of darkness are like put on notice. Everybody knows. Everybody's full, everyone's fully aware what's gone down, what happened. Like, they can't be that bright, right? If Jesus already preached his triumph to them and they are still trying to oppose him, they already know they're coming from a defeated position, this helps me to obey the verses above that says, don't fear intimidation and don't be troubled, man. You're not dealing with somebody that's playing with a full deck. If, if Jesus already has gone down there and said, I won, and yet they're still trying to do everything they're trying to do, man, they're working out of such blindness and pride that they, they have a lot less going for them than I think a lot of times people give them credit for. And so Jesus' triumph is total. The dead have heard about it. The living have heard about it. The word of God goes forth everywhere. Uh, and, and that's the point that Peter's making. What is all the stuff about Noah, right? So he says um, they were brought safely through the water. Uh, verse 21, corresponding to that baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So uh, this, again, cool stuff is in here. He just, you got to work a little bit. He says, corresponding to that baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. So he's not talking about the, the physical act of baptism saving you. It's this appeal to God for a good conscience that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so how do we go from having a, a bad conscience to a good conscience? Well, that only happens through the power of God, the gospel, through the truth of Jesus, and the power of his Holy Spirit changing us, right? So he's not saying that baptism saves you. He's saying that the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what is the deal with the water? He's saying like eight persons were brought safely through the water, corresponding to that baptism now saves you. So it's like, hold on. Noah wasn't saved through the water. Like the water was the danger. The ark saved Noah. But now he's saying the water in the baptism is like the water in the, you know what I mean? Like, ugh, what is going on here? So really, if you think about it, the ark did save Noah from the water, but the water saved Noah from the wickedness of the world. The world had gotten to such a point. I know we struggle with the flood sometimes because a lot of people died, but here's what God said about it. Everybody, everybody had gotten so evil in their intention. Everyone was raping, pillaging, murdering, everybody. That was what they were about, and they were not going to stop. And you had one guy, not perfect, obviously, but one guy that semi-cared about what God was doing, and had he been left in that, it wouldn't have been long before he was raped, pillaged, and murdered, right? Like, that, it was coming. And so that water not only fulfilled what God did in judging the earth and kind of hitting the restart button, it also did protect Noah from all of that evil and, and wickedness. In the same way, if you go to Romans and you see how baptism is talked about, the, the symbolism of baptism, and this is why we immerse. We don't argue with people that don't, but there's something to the visible act of Taking a man down, the dead man going down, and a new man coming up. 
And so in that, he's not talking about the, the physical act of baptism isn't saving anybody, but the, the symbolism of going down into that water, what we understand is in the same way Noah was saved from the, the evil of the world in that day by that water coming, when we go down to that water, when that dead man is put to death and a new man comes up, we are also saved from evil. It's not external evil, it's the evil in us, right? We leave something down in there. So Noah had external evil that water saved him from. We, we have internal evil. We, we need saved from ourselves. And when God comes and changes us and, and we're willing to, to stand up and say through baptism that that's true and I believe that and, and we, we participate in the, in the symbolism of that, it's, it's a declaration to everyone else but also to ourselves that I'm leaving that dead man, that, that man that was bent on my destruction, that old man, he's staying dead. And so that water uh, is what he's talking about. That's how the water of Noah's day ties to the water of baptism. I know that was hard work. That was hard work for me. But it, it's, it is cool when you really understand what he's talking about. Um, and I get, I get where he's going. So he says all of that is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. None of it's possible without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said if Jesus didn't rise, we should be pitied. Jesus' resurrection is our hope, friends. Verse 22. G- so... Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. That's a pretty straightforward statement, so all I'm going to do with that verse is ask you some questions. He is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Jesus, the risen Son of God, Christ is king over all. Everything has been put underneath him. He is absolutely supreme in his sovereign rulership. And so my question to you, friend, is will you live as if this is true? Will you live as if Jesus really is the king of glory? Will you live as if he does occupy the seat next to the Father, that he is ruling and reigning, sitting there as an advocate on our behalf, Will you submit to him like a king? Whether you are a believer or not today, my question to you is, what will you do with this claim? Here is the claim, that Christ is at the right hand of God. He's gone into heaven, that angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him, that absolutely everything belongs to him, that he is God and that we are not, and then that demands an answer. So friend, whether you believe today or whether you don't believe today, I'm putting this proposition in front of you. I'm letting you know what the Bible claims. This leaves you no middle ground. And regardless of what the tone of my voice is communicating, all of this is coming out of love. Whether you believe today or you don't believe, Christ is king. What will you do with that? Will you submit? Will you consider it? If you're struggling to believe, will you at least consider it? Will you at least really pursue truth? May we all, and may we respond. There is no middle ground. A decision must be made. Is he king or not? Is he ruler or not? I believe he is, and I'm thankful. And I would submit my own life as proof. May we be a people who walk in humble confidence, free of fear, because Christ is Lord of our hearts. May we be a people who are ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And may we live in such a way that people ask about our hope. 
And may we all submit to the supremacy of Christ for our good and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for these verses. We thank you, Lord, that they are true. We thank you that they are encouraging and challenging at the same time. Lord, we submit to you the reality that uh, sometimes our motives are bad. Uh, Lord, sometimes we're lazy. Sometimes we're scared and insecure. We ask you, Lord, by the power of your spirit to help us with all those things that stop us from being ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. For some of us, Lord, we've even lost hope. For some of us, Lord, we've, we've gotten too used to the idea of having hope, and so it's, it doesn't stand out in our lives anymore. Father, anything, we're, we're just asking you to examine us, help us, show us in what ways are we not going against the grain enough that it would cause curiosity, and in what ways, Lord, are we missing opportunities to speak of the hope and the truth of the gospel. Lord, please continue to entrust us with this beautiful privilege and opportunity. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. We need your help. We can't do this without you. We can't have a fruitful conversation with somebody about eternal things without your help, and so we just submit that to you. We ask for your help, Lord, and we ask for your help to really truly be submitted to this overarching truth that you are Lord, that absolutely every authority and power has been put under your feet, that you are king over all, that your victory is complete. Lord, may we not only submit to that, but may we rejoice in it because we get to share in it, because you've brought us along. You've made us co-victors with you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we have hope now and for eternity. Help us, please, Lord, to remember our stories. Not just the big overarching narrative of how we came to know you, but Lord, help us to remember the details. Help us to remember the times when you've shown up, when you've met us in unexpected ways, when you've, when you've answered prayer and you've met needs, Lord. May all of those things, may they, may they stay vibrantly alive in us, and so when we talk to people and we're dealing with their struggles, we can pull on the hope that is in us and share it with others. We know that's your will. Lord, I know for some of us, we're going to need to be reminded of things we've forgotten. Please do that for us. Please help us. There's things that tragically we have forgotten, things that you've done, places you clearly showed up and were faithful. We didn't treat those things like they were precious. Lord, please forgive us and please remind us. Help us, Lord. We love you and we worship you. You're worthy of this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.